Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. There are many more than just musicians behind a great sounding album. No matter how well they play, or how good the songs are, it doesn't mean much if the recording doesn't capture them the right way. And when it came to many of Billy Joel's most iconic albums, the person responsible for shaping much of that sound was Jim Boyer. Billy Joel, along with the Lords of 52nd Street and others, put some great performances down on tape, working with producer Phil Ramone and his crew. And a crucial member of that team was Jim. As an engineer, Jim Boyer was responsible for capturing the performances which were often played by the full band live in the studio. Then, as mixer, he blended all those elements into the great-sounding records we all know today. After years in the studio with Billy, Paul Simon, and many others, Jim moved into a different part of the music business when he co-founded Double Helix, a CD-pressing plant. Then he returned to mixing, first by doing sound at live music events, then back to studio recordings. Jim passed away on June 15, 2022, at the age of 71. But along with the legacy he left on countless hit records, his legend lives on through the stories his friends remember and the impact he had on their lives. For this episode, we spoke with Larry Frank and Bradshaw Lee, two members of Phil Ramone's production team that worked on several Billy Joel albums, as well as working with many other artists. They'll share their memories of Jim as a friend, his work in the studio, his impact on the music industry, and what it was like recording dozens of records in the 1970s and 80s. Join us as we dig deep into the life and work of Jim Boyer. While in these days of quiet desperation, as I wander through the Maybe you've never heard of Jim Boyer. I promise you, if you uh, flip your Billy Joel records over to the back cover. You're going to see his name on a bunch of them. Um, so yeah, even you, you know, you may not have heard of him, but he's a big part of what you've been listening to for 40 some years. And we're very proud to uh, bring you a little insight on him as a sound engineer and as a person. Speaking with Bradley, you know, we really started to get to the core of someone that we, you know, never had the uh, pleasure of speaking with. Just got a quick slice of his humanity. And I think that's something uh, we get to do sometimes that's pretty special. As someone who grew up in the vinyl era and as such a fan of music, as soon as I was old enough to read, I poured over the liner notes and the lyrics and the credits on all of my favorite records. So I knew not only who played on them, but who recorded them, who mixed them, who produced them. Because to me, that was all so important to know who was responsible for my favorite records. Well, yes, Billy Joel, Liberty DeVito, Doug Stagmeyer, you know, the band was certainly responsible for the way the band sounded. Jim Boyer engineered and mixed these records that will live on forever. And so he is as crucial a member of this unit as anyone. Jack, you and I were talking early in the year about wanting to speak with Jim. And it got to a point where I said, well, yeah, maybe we'll reach out to Brad and see if he can connect us because I think they've been in touch. And I kid you not, no sooner... Then we had those discussions that we got the news of Jim's unfortunate passing. Getting to speak with Larry and with Brad 
it, it really was special and an honor to get to the core of who he was as a person and as a engineer and as part of the School of Phil Ramon. I'm glad it ultimately came together because it's an important story. And Jim Boyer is certainly an important person. We have some thoughts from Larry Frank. We also got to reconnect with our old friend Bradley. So before we get to the memories of Jim Boyer, I guess this is going to be a little bit of another look forward, look back sort of episode. We did one like this at the end of 2020. After hearing about Jim, we're going to talk about some news about Billy's upcoming tour dates for 2023. So for now, let's throw to our conversation with Larry Frank. At some point around, I think, late 1979 or something, the offer came for me to work with Phil, and I said, hell yeah. That's when I you know, got into that group. Jim was his primary engineer. Dave Smith, a technician that Phil trusted with everything to align Dolby's a certain way, and Dave Smith was his right-hand man. Uh, God rest both of their souls, actually. So Jim, I mean, Jim was my first mentor through Phil. You know, Phil was a harsh teacher. But if you listened to him, you could pick up a lot. And uh, I learned from Phil and Jim and also Elliot Shiner uh, through doing Steely Dan and, and all the projects Elliot Shiner was doing. Elliot Shiner was also a student of Phil's. There was an age difference there, but we're talking now the 60s and early 70s. So I got in there and uh, I worked with Phil from 1980 to 1984. Jim Boyer was always the but the primary engineer. We all did overdubs when needed in there too. Chaz Clifton. Gosh, I mean, the, the, I did so many projects. Jim was a, was a really good teacher. He was very patient. And me, Jim, and Brad were like the triumvirate. Whatever Phil did, the three of us were there with Phil and Dave Smith too. When we were working with Phil, Brad was sort of an auxiliary tech guy. Brad is brilliant with the technology. I was the number number one second engineer or assistant engineer. I was the right-hand man at the console with whoever was recording. That was my gig. Second engineer, assistant engineer, and pinch hitting for when the engineer wasn't there. I, mean, I remember doing some of that, too, some of the overdubs. Jim was the number one engineer. He was Phil's number one, always Phil's engineer. With whatever Phil did, Jim was the primary engineer. He was the first engineer. Larry, once again, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for giving us your memories of Jim. We really appreciate it. Now we're going to go over to Bradshaw Lee, another great friend of the podcast who had a very close connection to Jim over the years and shared with us not only his memories of his friend and his colleague, but also the recording scene in general, working with Phil Ramone, working with Billy Joel. I think what we realized when we were listening to this is uh, Jim was a big part of a bigger story and hearing some of the other anecdotes really brought everything into focus. And we'll throw it over and out to Brad. Jim Boyer, uh, as a recording engineer, uh, what did that entail exactly? For him uh, versus, you know, assistant engineer, associate engineer, some of these other titles that we see, mixer, uh, producer on a record. Well, it's hard to explain how recording has changed, but the difference between a good recording engineer and somebody that's not so skilled is 
huge to the artist and the flow of the session. There's a tremendous amount to keep track of. You have to create a positive environment while getting all these sounds, dealing with technical difficulties. Think ahead. Think of what the artist wants. What used to happen with Phil Ramone a lot was you were supposed to know when to hit record. If you're hanging out on a Billy Joel session and they're wanking around for half an hour playing <laughs> you know, pornographic <laughs> songs. When Billy starts to play something else on the piano that's kind of cool, you you had to be the guy that knows to hit record. Otherwise, that's lost forever. It's a little hard to explain how much weight was on the shoulders in, in the days of undo on a computer. You know, he was responsible for getting the sounds, organizing how it went on tape, and at the same time, leaving space for expansion and additional recording. And also in those days, what was a big deal was making sure everything was working right. Equipment was a lot less reliable. You could record a track and then go back and play back and realize the next day that the guitar track was distorted and it wasn't supposed to be. You know, I could be more pedantic about, well, they placed the microphones and they <laughs> equalized the sounds, and, you know, so I'm not quite sure how to answer that. What did that dynamic feel like in the moment, project to project, you know, the people in the booth, you had, you had the artist out there, you had Phil, it sounds like was always you know, the snowplow, just make everything perfect for the artist. And it sounds like it was on you guys to make that happen, to make sure everything was, was coming through crystal clear. There were no hiccups. What was that team like behind the glass? Yeah. Well, it, you know, talking about Jim, it's tough for me to make him as big as he was in my life. Uh, it, you know, his inf influence was huge and I've been engineering for 40 years and he got me started in the right direction. And it's, it's almost difficult to cherry pick exactly where the influence was. But, you know, I first met Jim during 52nd Street and I was a technician at A&R Recording and Phil was the owner of A&R Recording and mm -hmm. Phil was revered and feared by everybody at A&R. I'm a young guy. I want to get in the music business. I want to become a recording engineer, but I happen to have technical chops. So they, they said, look, you come in tech for a year and then we'll let you transition into becoming a recording engineer. So early on in um, 52nd Street, uh, these guys were meticulous. I didn't want to go anywhere near that room. I was afraid of those guys. And, you know, I get called in by Jim in a very stern demeanor after a session saying he didn't like the way the 24 track machine sounded. He didn't like the way the playback sounded. And I had set up and calibrated the machine before the session. So he calls me in and we tear the machine apart and we go through every setting and everything and they find nothing wrong with it. So, you know, psychoacoustic, some days you're having a bad day and you just don't think it sounds good. But from that point on, it feels like this, this kid, I want him covering my sessions because it was covering a tech was always standing by for any problems in another room. So I met Jim and Phil that way. And when I transitioned into engineering, A&R had a very unique policy, which was one assistant trained under one engineer. And you learned his discipline. You learned his style. You didn't bounce it around from client to client, from engineer to engineer. You worked with one guy and it was, his it was his responsibility to kick your ass and teach you. Before I worked with Phil and Jim, when I transitioned to engineering, I assisted Jim for a year and we did 11 records. We did 11 albums. And this is not mm -hmm. Phil stuff. This is not Billy. This is not Streisand. This is not Chicago, you know, we, right. we did 11 records. My first assisting day with Jim, which is insane to think now, was the Broadway cast album, Yubi. And the reason I say that is because Broadway cast albums are relatively complex situations. So throwing a newbie. <laughs> and I remember Jim walked in 
It was probably a nine o'clock downbeat. Jim walked in at you know 8.30, 8.45, and I'm still running around checking some mics and headphones. And he just walks in and goes, when I walk in, I want to see you eating breakfast. Like, <laughs> it's like, you better be done. Done by <laughs> the not, time I get there. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. but you know, when the downbeat, you know, when I walk in here, you got to be done with all this shit. So that's where our <laughs> friendship started. <laughs> that's a great subtle way to put that too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's Jim. Jim and I are both known for being a-holes. I'm sorry. We were we were skilled. And also, I was so proud. I had, I had come in Sunday the day before and spent the whole day setting up because I was new. And I was proud of myself for having all this done. And he just found the thing that was wrong and shot me down, as he should have. <laughs> and so what was that first year like learning from him? Oh, man, it was a blast. Oh, my gosh. I mean, just thinking doing 12 complete albums. You know, for, yeah. I think most of them were complete. Some of them were mixing. It was hard. He was a taskmaster. He, you know, he was trained by Phil Ramon. Mm-hmm. So he carried on that same thing and he was really strict. And what he would do is like, you know, the first day, all right, we got to make safety, set up the machine. He'd show me how to copy a 24 track. Right, then it was my job. You know, he would sh- walk me through everything. He was really strict. He was the boss and I was the assistant while we worked, and somehow we managed to become best friends on off hours, which is very unusual. To have somebody that's very strict with you being your boss, and we wound up becoming you know, best friends and hanging out most of the time that we actually weren't working together. But we mm. did a lot of fun records. We did, you know, we worked on, oh, geez, let me see if I can remember. We worked on a few Japanese projects, um, worked on a few GRP projects. Uh, we worked on Sedao Watanabe, but it was just, it was just great. It was just great. I'm, I'm assuming because you were working on records, there wasn't a lot of tutorial or, hey, this is how this works. Was it a lot of on the fly, sort of on the job, figuring out how things go? Or was there a, a real formal sort of educational uh, curriculum almost? Or is it really just as it came up? I think it was as it came up. You know, like if you say the first UB date, he would say what microphones he wanted, where he wanted them, where he wanted them connected to the equipment, where he wanted them recorded on the tape machine. And then it was my job to document that and see what changes he made. Certain things he would have, he would just do first and he would show me. It's kind of crazy to say, but if, if you look at a track sheet that Jim filled out and I filled out, it's almost impossible to tell them apart because like I even copied his handwriting. But there was a <laughs> method. There was a way of keeping the notes. You know, you said you wrote the date that the track was recorded on. You wrote the, the name of the musician. You did this. A lot of things that he got from Phil. So it was, it was a hybrid of walking me through stuff and showing me how to do it. And then it was a hybrid of it, you know, it being during the process while we were recording, seeing the changes that we made. You were a technician for a year with A&R. You would work with Jim Boyer, Phil Ramon, and maybe a couple other people. But once you were being trained by Jim, you were with Jim the whole time for a year? That was it. I had one or two things where they needed me and they called me in. But for that first year that we did 12 albums, I Mm -hmm. only worked with Jim on records. But uh-huh. so there was this training procedure where he would tell me what to do, and then I had to do it. You know, at the beginning, all right, so the session's over. We've got to make copies of these. We've got to make safeties. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. And then eventually, I would do that work. And it was a very disciplined way of working. And he was very tough, and he was tough on the staff, and he was tough technically because Phil didn't take any bullshit. A lot of recording sessions, guys will come in, plug in the mics, bring them up a little bit, you know, all right, 
plug in all the headphones. And then as soon as the band walks in and sits down to play, oh, the bass player goes, oh, one side of my headphones isn't working. Shit like that would never fly on a fill date. You know, no. you got to be ready to record right away, whether or not it's optimum, whether or not you've got your levels exactly right, whether or not you got your EQ. It's like capture the music and get it down and don't interfere with the artist's flow. So in order mm. to do that, you've got to be really hard on your game. So, you know, I would go through it, it, like an example being one of the nerve, most nerve wracking things was punching. When we worked, we were constantly going in and out of record and it's destructive on analog tape. So you punch mm. in and you would record a line or you record a bar to the bass or whatever, and you'd punch out. Jim would always signal me with a punch. But if I was confused at all, he would just grab the machine and he, would, he didn't like to, but he would take over for me. And then if I blew a punch, he'd just go, here's the deal. You can punch in late, punch out early, but you never punch in early and you never punch out. Like, so if you don't know, mm. get out. You know what I mean? It was like, but it was mm. like these little rules that just went. Through this is how this is how you mark a track sheet. You mark the musician with the instrument. You mark the date. You mark if it's you know. So it was just this policy of getting this real strong discipline. And honestly, I have no idea how we became best friends. I mean, because it seems unlikely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and then we eventually did have problems, but we just felt like we were the A team. You know what I mean? We would work for, you know, 18 hours a day, go from one studio into the next studio. And that year that we did those first 11 records, it was just chaos. We just yeah. records overlapping. It was just like we would we would get done at three o'clock in the morning mixing in R2. He would send me to set stuff in R1. We'd go work on another record in R1. And we were just working insane like this for a year, which was before mm -hmm. I met Phil. So and that's how I wound up getting with Phil was fit. Jim taught me this discipline. He taught me this hyper focus, watch the producer, watch the artist, figure out what they're going to need. Look at the tape machine. Do you have enough tape to get a complete take? Don't let these guys get into a take, you know, and have the machine run out of tape. Do you, you know, no real, it was like you had to know to go into record without somebody telling you, you just had to really be hyper vigilant and on your game. So everybody else could fuck off and have fun. You right. had to be like the adults in the room. I'm really fortunate that we worked hard and we played equally hard. And there was a lot of mornings that it hurt. When you go to bed <laughs> at eight o'clock in the morning, you got to be back at the studio at 11. It's a very <laughs> painful thing. But one of the things that was a blessing for me in the crazy 80s was we didn't do drugs on dates. We didn't mm -hmm. get high. We didn't drink. Because we had right. to be the adults in the room. Now, in fit with Phil, that was the general rule of thumb. But I mm -hmm. can't say that it, it 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 didn't ever happen. People would break up in a bottle of wine or whatever. But we had to be the designated driver for the session. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was just this real hyper focused, vigilant, keep good notes. You know, when the session was over, I still had two hours of work to do. You know, as far as making oh, yeah. safeties, clearing up notes, packing stuff up, getting stuff ready for the next day. You know, one of the things that Jim taught me was how to keep really good notes while you're recording. So on our track sheets, the method was very, very specific, but it told you a big story, which was if you recorded on a tape, it was called an original. If you edited something else, it then became a master. So if it's 24 track original, oh, that's from the day it was recorded. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. And then you would write down all the instruments on the track sheet, but then you would also write each musician. It just wasn't acoustic. Like most people just go acoustic guitar, electric guitar, but this would be like acoustic guitar, Russell, electric guitar, David. And then if you 
fixed something, you notated that. If you then overdubbed, added something, it was Mark Selsink. It was marked, it was an overdub and the date. So you knew what was from the original performance, what was added later. When we would have a crucial effect, we would try to print it on tape if we could. But, we, you know, Nylon Curtain was primarily 24 track. And the reason it was 24 track was we actually at that point had a second machine to lock two tape machines together and do 48. But we were mixing in Phil's room. It was a 32 input Neve. We only had 32 channels on the console. So you couldn't record 48. You couldn't use 48 tracks. You had to condense stuff down. So we mm. had some effects that were recorded on tape. But what I found that was a little frustrating was I'd bring them up and they weren't quite right. Because when Jim went to mix, he had the hardware available to him. So if you want to dial it in a little bit, he could. You didn't have to use the effect that was on tape. So even though some of the effects were on, if something was like really critical, like there's shit all over Lib's drums on that record. Some of it's recorded and some of it, I have notes and had a note on pressure and it isn't. Because it was recorded, that doesn't always mean it matched what was in the final mix. So that was, you know, one of the main things that he taught me, which was why Bill Ramone always had love affairs when he met new people. And there was always great. Oh, this guy's great. He's great. He's great. And then, but Phil was tough as nails. So the honeymoon would end and then you had to deal with it. You know, you had to deal with Phil. And so Phil had hired an assistant engineer from California, flew him into New York. The guy moved, become Phil's assistant because he, he always had his one assistant. And after a few weeks, Phil fires him. I don't know what happened, but he fires him. And so I get the manager of the studio going, and go, you're assisting Phil. So the, mm -hmm. my first thing to do is to call my girlfriend and say, do you have a Valium? <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, and I'm just like, oh, Jesus. So I go in and it was um, in that period of weeks. So I, I assist Phil one night and I get a call from the manager the next day. And he goes, Phil wants you to be his guy. I just work with, with Phil. Mm -hmm. And that's all because of Jim's training. It's because I learned how to do it from Jim. So I fit right into, by the way, we were crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were nuts. Like we, we were not nice and polite about being demanding. We were mm -hmm. kind of rude, but it was sort of like shit rolls downhill. So it's like, if I'm the assistant engineer, I'm going to go in and yell at the representative from Rupert Neve because something's off on the console. Cause I don't <laughs> want Jim yelling at me and I don't want Phil yelling at both of us. Right. So we sort of traveled like a little army. I mean, it was also unusual for, you know, I was fortunate in that working for A&R, I always assisted Jim. I don't recall, I remember one other session I did or two, but basically I only assisted Jim. So I got to know Jim and what I was dealing with. And then when I worked for Phil, I only worked for Phil. You know, and it's a funny thing too, that now that I'm older, like, man, Phil and Jim were just driving me nuts. They'd, they'd catch, they would catch shit that pissed me. I was like, how the fuck, did, how do they walk in the room and listen to this rough mix and know that this is the wrong guitar track, like that fast? And it's like, <laughs> what I learned is experience is worth more than anything else in pretty much any field. So Phil had been through every disaster session that you could possibly had and swore that none of them would ever happen again. Mm. So we just were like really tough. You know, we were, we came in, we checked everything out. Nothing was good enough for us. We were relatively unpopular in a lot of places, I think. But then also <laughs> in other places, I think like what Jim did with me is, you know, you get your ass kicked, but if the person is raising your bar, then you start to get a feeling of accomplishment right. you know, of, of what you've done. And like, I have a great photograph of Jim, Phil and I all in our sunglasses and leather jackets. And it's 
it's the day glass houses ended and Jim, Jim and I took Phil out for a night on the town and got crazy. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, there was yeah. the other, so Jim and I would work all week and it probably drove his girlfriend nuts. We would work all week <laughs> and then I spend the weekend at his house. You know, <laughs> uh, Was there like a, a moment where Jim just being Jim kind of emerged? Cause it sounds like, you know, that was how it was. Like you said, shit rolled downhill. Phil bitches him out. He bitches you out. You know, was there a moment where, where you started to like see the real Jim or was it like always sort of there? Not while we're working. So it turned on and off? Yeah. And by the way, the, the real Jim could show up on a lunch break when everybody was out in the lounge, you know, eating yeah. lunch. He could turn to me and, you know, say something sarcastic about Phil or the uh. artist or the producer <laughs> or whatever. But when, when it's on, it's game on. It's you got your yeah. game face on, and that's what it was. What was Jim like when he wasn't working? He was a lot of fun, and he was very funny. I mean, we had a lot of laughs. And, you know, I, uh, last time I talked to Jim was about a week before he, he died. I saw him recently a couple times. He was living on the West Coast. It was one of those friendships, and it's hard to explain, but as soon as we got together, I saw him like two years ago and like four years ago. As soon as mm -hmm. we got together, we just started laughing and talking. It's it's one of those friendships that just sort of picks up exactly where it left off. You know, we're both, I'm 26 and he's 30 again. We, You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's that kind of thing. You know, I came from a pretty unstructured upbringing. And I think Jim came from one that was a bit more so. So he, he had a lot of interests and passions. And like one was motorcycles. Again, this sort of, this sort of carried over. He was almost like a big brother to me and that, he had a motorcycle and I went to try it and I bought a shit motorcycle from Cooster McAllister record plant. It was kind of a beater. Billy gave Jim the best bike in the world at the time, which was a GPZ 1000, a Kawasaki GPZ 1000 in the eighties. Like that was the beast. It was like a cafe racer and Billy gave him one. And so Jim had a Kawasaki 650. So what he did was he helped me fix up my shit bike, sell it. And then for not much money, I bought his Kawasaki 650 from him. And that bike looked better than the day it walked out of the showroom. It was like the same thing with the meticulousness at work. You know, it was, mm -hmm. it had rejetted carbs with K&N air filters and, you know, racing exhausts and, you know, and it was just beautiful. We like to do stupid things like that. You know, there was motorcycles and I remember once we uh, drove out, he, he bought a Jeep Cherokee. Uh, which now is worth a fortune, like an 80s, a real Jeep Cherokee is worth a fortune now. And like two of us, I just got in the Jeep Cherokee with him and he picked out a four-wheel drive rally in like the middle of Iowa. And we mm -hmm. drove cross country, you know, they had tractor poles, they had those things where they try to go through the mud. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a pretty simple guy. He had a lovely girlfriend. He had a beautiful house and uh, yeah, he liked to enjoy life. Especially when you were going back through the nylon curtain tapes, and I don't know if this applies or not, but you know, was there anything specific or sort of characteristic about his mixes, his approach to mixes, the way his ear sort of worked, or what he heard that that you would say is is you know unique to him or something that he passed down to you? Part of the process of us being an assistant engineer and learning, and which I did learning from Jim, which was pretty cool was in those days, it was all analog gear that had knobs and switches. Uh -huh. So when we would go to mix something and remix it, you'd have to repatch all the equipment in and you'd have to reset all the knobs and dials and switches. But because they're variable knobs and stuff, and you have all this equipment that you're hooking up, the mix never quite sounds right. 
Mm -hmm. You have to go by ear then and start tweaking everything and adjusting it. So I had to recall a bunch of Jim's mixes and, and learn his style. The thing that I think is really kind of interesting about being a recording engineer is the fact that you can't teach it. Like Jim had his style, which I can come close to, but it's not going to be the same. It's like mm -hmm. Elliot. I remember once, I, you know, Elliot Shiner had just done Steely Dan and I walked into Studio A1. He was working with Steely Dan after the session. Let's look at the console because I want to see what Elliot did. He just won the Grammy for Steely Dan. Mm -hmm. It's like, what the f I don't see anything. He's adding 2dB at 10K. He's cutting three. It's, but he just knew where, when, and what to add. So I think that's really hard to quantify. I do think that he did share with Phil the ability to mix a pop record in that knowing what was important. Uh, you know, when I go back and, and, and mix the nylon curtain, it's like, there's shit that's buried, man. But it's not gone. You know, it just wasn't the story at that part right. of the song. One of the complaints and compliments I've gotten about my mixing is everything's so clear. I can hear everything, but that's not always a good thing. So, <laughs> so you, know, you want that, that blend. Sometimes you want it to be, uh, you know, this powerful cluster. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I just think if you think about, you know, like, you know, the Pina Colada song, come on. You know, how many times have you heard that on the radio? Uh, that's Jim. Oh, yeah. Produced and mixed. Yeah, yeah uh -huh. it's produced and mixed by Jim. You know, a lot of Streisand stuff. I, and I think it's that, you know, he was always a bit of an enigma to me because you can't see what somebody does. I, I don't know how to explain it. And that I always worked with him. Everything always sounded right. And I also think it comes from Phil's discipline of the fact that when I first worked with Phil, the first album I did with him was a band called Get Wet. We were recording at yep. Power Station and I, I was sh scared. <laughs> and I'd been brought up at A&R Recording and I was in an unfamiliar studio, which I didn't like. Uh, Larry was assisting me on that. We brought Larry. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, uh, there was a playback of one of, the, one of the first takes, and there was a Christmas tree, and Phil threw a Christmas ornament at me, a glass Christmas <laughs> ornament, and it missed, and it smashed on the patch bay. And what it was was I didn't have my hands on the console. I wasn't constantly mixing. So when you worked with Phil and you worked with Jim, you had to be constantly mixing. That's one of the things that I got from Jim was we were always riding faders to tape. We didn't just sit right. there and like now today, nobody does that. Nobody does anything to Pro Tools. Everybody today treats Pro Tools as a mic preamp recorder. We'll figure out the levels. We'll figure out the EQ. We'll figure out the compression later. In that day, like with Jim, you had to make it sound like a record. And I've worked on stuff where people walk in and go, holy shit, this sounds like a record when you're tracking. And then I'll walk in and hear somebody doing a Broadway date, just like, this doesn't sound like a record. I mean, I can hear every instrument, but so I think right. that um, it's really hard to quantify. You can hear it. It's like pornography. You know it when you see it. You know, <laughs> Jim yeah. had a style and he was a great pop record mixer, but mm -hmm. it's very hard to quantify, I think. Just the fact that it was analog and, and like you were saying, you know, it just something might be different that day. It just the knob is just a little different. So you can't just it's not like Pro Tools, you know, where you could say, oh, OK, you know, minus two dB. That's the trick. It's like, no, you had to hear, I guess, what that knob was doing that day and just just know just know how to get the sound out of it. Yeah. And in those days, another thing was we worked at a lot of studios where people have gotten very precious and we bounced from one studio to another. And you may not have the same microphone. And you had to match the vocal sound. You know, oh. you just had you just you just had to make shit work. And I think that's one thing that Jim really taught me. 
how to make stuff work. And sometimes you recorded stuff that you may have captured a great performance, but sonically it wasn't optimum. And you mm-hmm. figured out how to make it work. I, you know, I didn't realize by the time we hit the nylon curtain, I would have thought this was different. But listening to those multi-tracks, Libs recorded on four tracks, kick, snare, and drums. And drums is all the Tom's cymbals and hi-hat. Two overheads? Overheads, Tom mics, and hi-hat are all mixed into the stereo drums. Oh, and then okay. you have wow. kick and snare separate. Virtually all of Billy's vocals are still live on that record. A lot of what Jim had that was you know, really amazing was just figuring out how to grab stuff and capture it. So it worked. You know, we were not allowed to sit there and have four hours getting a bass drum sound that a lot of sessions did that. You know, a lot of it too was getting to what you had said earlier was removing any of the friction on the artist side. So you're going to get a, the best possible performance in the live room as well. Right. So that's right. That's only going to improve <laughs> what's coming to like, the board. Yeah. Like we had techniques, like one thing that we did that vers- that most other people didn't do, maybe other people at A&R did, but we always sent our headphone mix after our board mix. I, I, these days, it still drives me nuts that people send their stereo mix to a musician in order to record, because that's never really quite what they want to hear in their headphones. You want to hear a good mix in the control room, so you have what you're recording in perspective to the music. Mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily the balance that the bass player may need more kick or something. So like working with Jim and working with Phil was like, we always had our headphones on around our neck and we'd constantly be mixing to the headphone mixes that we were sending out. And it was like, oh, the person's out of tune. So you just naturally oh, goose the piano a little bit. For They're out of time. And you just boost the drums a little bit. For I, I think one thing that Jim had and he taught me, which was just for that day, he had a monster skill set. And as far as coming in technically together, set the shit up, make it work for the musicians. And having worked with Phil, Phil at that time was very unique in that Phil worked in film, Broadway, and records. In those days, as a recording engineer or producer, they were absolutely different disciplines. Like, so I learned so much because you had to learn film frame rates and what and how film was edited and sync and resolving and getting audio to match up to film. And then video was a, a completely different world. And most people that worked in records didn't have those skills. When we recorded Paul Simon's One Trick Pony, we were trying to keep a 24 track on speed. Jim was recording in the front of the truck and I sat in the back of the truck with a Nagra, which is a standard film tape machine was doing the Nagra playbacks, which a 24 track was locked to. And Jim was playing back 24 tracks to the PA, which Brian Ruggles was mixing while he was recording 24 tracks off the stage. So if in the edit, they got a great shot, Eric Gale doing a guitar solo, who's a jazz player, who's not going to match the record. He, they could lift his gu- guitar solo the, the live filming as opposed to right, the playback the that he was supposed yeah. to be. Look, look. Yeah. So we did a lot of technically crazy stuff and loved it. Like we yeah. just felt like we were badasses, man. Like, you know. <laughs> Does anything jump out on the Billy records you two did together that where you, you guys got adventurous with a technique or an approach or just throwing something against the wall just to try something different? For starters, the fact that Billy recorded his record playing piano and singing 15 feet from Liberty DeVito that wasn't in a drum booth. And you can solo the piano and the mic. 
that's a pretty great accomplishment. It was a bold mic choice. It was a ribbon, which Billy loves to eat microphones. He can't stand a pop filter. So just sort of (laughs) approaching those things. I mean, on Nylon Curtain, Jim just went nuts. I mean, he used so many effects to such a not subtle degree that Mm -hmm. I felt it was bold. But, you know, Jim was always trying new things without it, you know, interfering with a session. But we carried, at the time, it was an unusual thing, but we carried our rack of our own equipment that were certain Mm. equalizers and compressors. And, Mm. you know, at the time, I didn't understand half of it. He had a broadcast limiter that he used on Billy, and he was always trying new techniques. And he was always trying to learn and try something different. Funny when you say, you know, how prominent the effects were on Nylon Curtain, and it's like they are, but they blend so well. Nothing felt out of place. Like you knew there was a flange on the drums. You could hear the effects on the guitars, but it didn't sound like somebody was dragging the kitchen sink through the through the control booth, you know. If you were to turn it all off, you would go, Oh, oh. <laughs> it's <laughs> it it blends in very nicely. It it, it it might be Scandinavian skies. I mean, geez, that was a harmonizer pitched down with feedback. So every time you hit the drum it went boom. Yeah. But it's a slap <laughs> to the actual drum. It's not but yeah, no, he had, a, he had a real direct approach to engineering. And it started with, you know, the guy had, you know, an oscilloscope sitting on, the, he carried his own oscilloscope, which mm-hmm. is, I don't know if you know what that is. It's, it's for reading waveforms in rel- relative phase. Uh-huh. And he okay. sat one on the console, you know, whenever he mixed. And he understood gain structure and, and uh, you know, made sure the machine was lined right. And just all that stuff to begin with. Bill's knee cam was the first, when I worked, assisted Jim on that stuff, on, on the early records, um, you know, that, that was the first automated console uh, with moving faders in New York, at least, probably the East Coast and maybe the USA. He was an early adopter of a lot of stuff. But he's, he just had a very straightforward approach. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that his pop mixes, his stuff always sounded good. This all sounds very serious, but... You know, we screwed around a lot. There was a lot of time when you weren't sitting there with your finger on the record button. Unfortunately, mm. most of the jokes that we played, I went put on a public podcast. <laughs> but, but we, you know, we just keep know. hearing that. And one of these days, we're going to hit pause and take you guys to task on it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we'll do a sidebar sometime, and we'll. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I, there's one tape that Larry gave me that's Phil had this thing. Well, there were two. There were two things that we dealt with with Phil and that drove us nuts, which was applause. And the reason we needed applause was for two purposes, which was Phil had this very early thing, which was very clever, which is you took a noise gate and you put an oscillator into it, which you put on wired to a thumb switch, so mm-hmm. a tone would open this gate. But then you put a loop of people clapping into the noise gate, so when you hit the button, you heard you heard like. Just the gate opened and closed, and it, so it sounded like a bunch of people clapping at once. Uh-huh. All in, so you could put it to clap in time if you wanted to put hand claps on a record. Or and then we worked on a lot of live projects where, in order to dovetail between the songs, you would put applause, right? You know, and, and, and you would you would mix in applause to overlap to make it sound seamless, so you didn't hear the edit. So we mm-hmm. we were always looking for clean applause. Every live show we did, and we did a lot of them. You know, I worked with Phil on Paul Simon live and there was Simon and Garfunkel at, at, at Central Park. And yeah. there was, you know, there was a few Billy shows live and 
So we're always going through the tapes looking for applause. So we could find, and so finally one night we just, I got high as a kite and just, uh, one, one night, I'm trying to find a better way to put that. One night <laughs> in the studio, Larry and I got high as a kite and I just went out there and applauded, like overdub myself clapping just over and over and over until I had like a hundred tracks of clapping. So we finally had this clean applause. You know, and I gave it to Jim on a reel and at the beginning it was, you know, Jim, I wanted to do something fun, something good for you. So I figured we'd make this applause tape. So I called all your friends and invited them in. And this is what I got. And you hear like, you know, one person yeah. I was like, and your mom was pissed that you know we didn't cover her car fare. So we we screwed around a lot, but uh, yeah, like I said, most of it is rated. <laughs> you don't want to go there, right? It was a pretty rough sense of humor. It was a pretty uh, drastic sense of humor. Yeah. You know, both you and Jim stopped working with Phil at different times. Were you two still talking frequently when Jim decided to go a different direction? You know, I, I became a full engineer and then and Jim was engineering. So I was doing my own projects. He was doing his. And we weren't working together that much anymore, except for we would we usually come together. I would help out on a Billy project. So that's when we'd work together again. So that's going into the bridge and then yeah. Russia, which was after that. So we worked together on Russia. And at that point, when he left the business, he moved to Pennsylvania. And I did go down to Pennsylvania a handful of times when he lived in Lidditz and he had opened the compact disc manufacturing. But yeah, we did sort of drift apart and we kind of drift apart for, for many years. We became closer again more recently. And uh, a funny thing was at one point in my life, I don't know, 15 years ago, you know, not only did Jim... Not only was he not my mentor, my best friend, I was best man at his wedding. But when, you know, when I started out, you know, he was probably making 75 bucks an hour and I was making $10 an hour. So I didn't really have any money. So we went out to a lot of dinners and stuff. And <laughs> he was very generous and he always covered. He would take, we'd go out to a nice restaurant with his girlfriend and he would buy dinner and he did this a lot. I got to thinking, you know, Jim, I'd go up to his house, his, you know, he helped me out with a motorcycle, all this stuff besides even working. Yeah. And so I sort of lost touch with him. And so at one point I said, you know, I was going to send him a letter. And I don't know if it was an email or a paper letter. This is the end of the 90s, I guess, maybe early 2000s. And I said, I just want to thank you for everything. And he reaches out to me and goes, he was calling everybody. He was afraid I was going to kill myself. Because <laughs> 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 after years, I just went, I just want to thank you for everything, man. And he, he thought it was really like wrong. a bad sign. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So, so after that, you know, and then I started, you know, staying more in touch with him and I saw him at, because uh, he was on the West Coast and I wasn't, mm -hmm. I didn't go out to, the, I've been at the West Coast all the time now. I, I probably had 15, 20 years that I didn't go out to the West Coast, not once after I stopped mixing out there in the, in the nineties. So, um, but I saw him at um, Bill's Memorial. He spoke at the audio engineering, audio engineering society convention he had a panel about Phil and he spoke and that was great to see him again. And then um, when his daughter got married uh, a few years ago, he invited me. And then after that, once I saw him at that, you know, we've been staying in touch really pretty constantly. And he was even calling me. He called me uh, a few months before he died about possibly going out to L.A. and he wanted me to help him out, work with him. 
because he got back into the game. Like he did the whole corporate thing and mm -hmm. then he loves sound. So what he started doing was it's really hard to get yourself restarted in this business, especially with him being like in the Bay Area. So he was getting back into Pro Tools and we talk about that. I'd give him some help working some of that through, but he was doing a lot of live sound. So he was back to mixing music again, you know, before he passed away. Did you get the impression when he, when he did get out of the business, was it just, he just felt like it was time to shift gears for a while or were you not in touch much at that time? I'm a little unclear about this because, you know, he brought me to a few events. Jim could also be a very private person. He compartmentalized a lot of stuff. Some of the aspects of his personal life, I wasn't always aware of, even though we were very close. Before he did that transition, he invited me to go to some, like it was a, a PCs came out and he invited me to go to some computer training. And then there was some other seminar about something that, you know, I don't know what it was, but the seminar, whatever the technicality was related to his at, being involved in compact discs. And uh -huh. maybe I didn't show interest. I'm not sure. I think, and I'm not sure about this, but the music business in the 70s and 80s was so fantastic. I cannot convey it. to people. I mean, I cannot convey it to people in that we were working all the time. I worked in dozens of studios, dozens of records, making not always great, but usually good money. You know, I was getting paychecks and I'm like, you're, I felt guilty. Like you're paying me for doing this. <laughs> we were having so much fun. And then you get to the point where you actually start to make uh, a good living. And, you know, Jim, had a house in Westchester near Phil. He had a mm -hmm. girlfriend and two cars. I think that when the business started to choke down a bit, it became financially not enjoyable. He's never told me, but I think that that was a motivation for him. He, like I said, he had a different background than I did. He grew up in Pennsylvania. I think he went, you know, he went to college, got an engineering degree worked in as an engineer for the steel mills, decided he didn't like it, made the big jump, moved to New York and became a recording engineer and was a success. But I think he still wanted the, the typical American lifestyle of a nice house, a nice car, a nice wife. The music yeah. business, I think, just proved to be too unstable. So I think that was his motivation for opening mm -hmm. the compact display. It just seemed to be something that he did. He never talked about, when I talked to him in that period, he never discussed missing being in the studio. But he did later in life when he came back around and, and got out of the corporate world and got back into mixing. Yeah, you know, yeah. you could see that that was really his true love. I've worked with bands who have had varying levels of success over the years. And I worked with one who had a big hit in the 90s. And someone asked the singer one day, he's like, do you have any regrets about, about it? And he's like, well, I wish I enjoyed it more at the time because we were yeah. so worried about what was next, yeah. trying to maintain it. I wish I took the time and enjoyed it while it was happening more. Yeah. And I'll have to say that from our side of the glass, that wasn't the case. Like we enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. We, Literally, you yeah. know, we'd work on some projects that drove us nuts, but we still gave it our all. I'm talking about the sort of the, the like the discipline and everything that we had in that era and the knowledge of, of the proper, you know, recording techniques. But at the same time, Paul Simon gave Phil Ramone a car when still crazy after all these years hit whatever. 
Mm-hmm. And at this, when I met Phil, this was his B car. He used to give it to me to like, if I had to run errands and stuff, there was a Mercedes. So <laughs> the we was the runner. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Until he bought his big new Mercedes because he was really doing well. So we came up with the idea for a gag. And this is like right out of that period. Nobody's going to believe this. The idea was this. We're going to buy a beater Cadillac. We're going to smash it up in a parking lot. We're going to take Ramones Rangers logos and spray paint them on the doors and the hood like, you know, uh, Ghostbusters. And we're going to park it on his front lawn when he throws his yearly Christmas party. Now, at this Christmas party is Billy Joel, the band, Paul Simon, everybody famous. It's catered. It's like the event of the year. Yeah. And we actually did this. We bought a beat and the Cadillac was unfortunately in two. It was just, it was like it was like a 65. It was after the wings, but uh, it was like, okay. you know, 30 feet long and it was gold. And I picked uh, it up and I drove it to Jim's house and my sister had made stencils and we put Ramon's la- Rangers logos on them. And, and the deal that we made was we all chipped in. It was 500 bucks. It was the band of Billy and me and Jim. And we and I drove it up and I parked it on his front lawn and I pulled the distributor cables. And then the gag was we had Billy present this card to Phil with keys to a Cadillac in it. <laughs> and and his big, this is Phil's big moment, his big Christmas party with all these famous people. And all these musicians, and we go, and he's like, go try it out. So Phil goes out in the yard and, you know, tries to start it while everybody (laughs) in the party is just laughing at him. And so, you know, that was like, you know, so it wasn't all, you know. Right. Go back to Jim real quick, because, you know, his foray into the corporate world was still, you know, music, you know, related to music. He he opened the CD pressing plant. Would you think that was related at all? The fact that he had an engineering background and the fact that working with Phil meant you guys were on the forefront of so much technology? I think that's probably what got him interested in it. And he had a good situation in that I think where it really worked for him was it was a partnership and he had backers and his partner was in plastics. So he had a guy that was doing optical plastics and printing a CD is basically the same science as printing eyeglasses. You know, Uh it's precision optics. I think Jim had the background. He had the clout with the credits of all the records he had worked on, which gave him cred in the music business to talk to people. Plus, you're right. He had the engineering background, so he understood the science of it. It's it's just funny that it was in Lidditz because now Lidditz has the, uh, was it the black box? And there's that big uh, rehearsal complex. Oh, oh well, yeah, actually, you know, I said Lidditz and that's because I'm thinking of Claire Brothers, which is in Lidditz. Oh, okay. yeah, Claire Brothers. But, yeah, which is- But yeah. Jim was very near there, but that's where he grew up. Oh, okay. So when he, okay. so when he put the plant in Pennsylvania, he went back to his home area. Hmm. And his family was there. They were bought up by a Korean company that moved him to the that moved everything to the West Coast. They had bought a number of plants. It's, it was interesting story in that the science of floppy. And then this is Jim telling me science, which is uh, surfactants play large, like soap plays large in the manufacturing of floppy disks. So the co- Korean company that bought him made those and was the largest floppy disk manufacturer. But they had every other brand name on them. So they wanted mm-hmm. to get into the CD world. So they bought his company, American Helix, and mm-hmm. he became part of Cal. And that's when he moved to the West Coast. So they were doing like the white labeling kind of deal, I see. Yeah. Even after working at A&R, uh, did you and Jim stay in touch regularly? Oh, God, yeah. I was yeah. best man in his wedding. And we continued, we continued to work together. I'm trying to think, because I was primarily engineering and he was primarily engineering, 
he did call me in on some projects that he was producing. Yeah, we continued to stay in touch until he moved out of New York. We were nuts. We used to work 14 hours a day all week, and then I'd go to his house on weekends. So, <laughs> <laughs> Was he very different in the studio versus on the weekends? Yeah, Jim was, Jim was pretty tough in the studio. Mm-hmm. He was pretty guarded. He was pretty focused. He was not gentle with his words at times. So uh, <laughs> he, he wasn't, you know, we're not talking about somebody that goes into the nasty, abusive, ne- you know, kind of thing. He was just focused and firm. And mm-hmm. so uh, he was pretty much always that way in the studio, except for maybe, I think he would probably loosen up more during mixing when, you know, the ball was in his court yeah. and um, he only had himself to please, you know, he didn't have to like <laughs> make sure something was right for the artist at that second. You know, working with him, what was the first thing that stuck out to you that he did that really made you recognize how good he was, was at his craft? Well, first of all, it sounded great. Back in the, you know, when you go back in the day, a lot of engineers weren't very good. If you listen to recordings and if you listen to especially like multi-track recordings, you know, you, you'd you go to mix a record that somebody else had recorded and it was just like, oh, geez, how am I going to make this sound decent? <laughs> he did it very well. Another thing, which was, again, which he passed down from Phil, but documenting the process and keeping track of the notes and the lyric sheets and keeping attention on the artist and the producer, that was a really different skill set. Like, if you go back and look at the notes of those days, you can figure out a lot that was going on when a lot of people would just write down bass drum, snare, hi-hat, you know, or guitar, acoustic mm-hmm. guitar. They, they wouldn't say, this one was, you know, Russell, this one was Doug, this was recorded on this day, this was overdubbed. Oh, I got a good sound, use this effect on this track. Our process of documenting the tapes, the masters, the recording, the musicians, all that was, you know, very accurate as well. And I think it just showed a whole higher level of work. And also being the way I got to know him was him being technically demanding. A lot of people would just walk in and use a studio. And he was technically the chief engineer of A&R Recording. It would be his responsibility to get on the technical staff to, if he saw some little flaw you know, you mm-hmm. can walk into a lot of studios and a lot of things wouldn't be wor- quite right. Mm-hmm. But he was very demanding on that regard as well. Yeah. Obviously, you guys did a, a lot of records together, but which ones stand out as some of your favorites? Maybe even just in terms of, of working side by side with Jim. Glass Houses was just a blast in all ways. And it was, I assisted Jim for a year and Phil Ramone hired an assistant from California that he really liked. And he flew him to New York. And after two weeks, he couldn't stand the guy. So he fired him. <laughs> and he was in the middle of mixing Chicago 13, Heat Wave, Paul Simon's One Trick Pony. I had to fill in and I'd been trained by Jim. And so, of course, I knew the drill. Right. I had handwriting, you know, I knew what. So then the next day I hear Phil wants you to be his guy. And I, and I, and I chat with Jim about it. And he goes, well, look, man, I was at the point with Jim where we did a recording at the Smithsonian and with a remote truck. And I went down. He didn't say anything. I went down, set up all the mics got it all set up to go. And he walked in right before the concert and hit record. Like I knew his style well enough mm-hmm. to duplicate it. So he's like, right. look, man, you can either you know, stay with me and that will take some burden off of my workload or you can go with Phil and that will get Phil off of my back for a while so I can start working on more independent projects. And that's, that's sort of how I w- started working with Phil. But I would say the two big ones, the two projects that I really enjoyed working on with Jim there was a couple Japanese albums in the beginning that we had a lot of fun on. Sadao mm-hmm. Watanabe 
the first Billy Joel glass houses, the crazy Paul Simon one trick pony. We were in a remote truck in Cleveland for a few weeks. They were all sort of wild experiences. We had a good time. What made those stand out? The Japanese projects uh, had a little bit more humor, a little bit more humor in them. We felt a little less under the gun than like we would on a Phil Ramone project. And the artists that came over were really enjoying being in the States. I think we loosened up a little bit on those projects and had a good time. The Paul Simon One Trick Pony, you know, in Cleveland was just for the insanity. And and I think Glass Houses was, you know, I'm very proud of the I'm very proud of the fact that I'm the only assistant engineer on Glass Houses. It's only Jim Boy and Brad Lee. That's that's who did Glass Houses. Yeah. So um uh, we knew each other well enough to work well together and we had a blast and we were working with Phil and we were working with that band. So I think that those are those are the high points of working with Jim. I'm curious if there's anything in particular about Jim's approach from the way he would, uh, you know, document everything to just the way he knew how to, how to get the right sounds. Was there anything that really made his approach and his craft and his style especially beneficial for Billy Joel Records? There was a Steely Dan record that uh, they were working on at a and when I was a technician there. Somebody just wanted the session to end because they were on to the 14th hour of doing the bass drum sound. <laughs> now, you know, I'm a massive fan of those records, but you can't do that on a Billy Joel record. Uh-huh. Those guys are shooting from the hip completely. And you've got to be, you've got to get good sounds fast to capture the moment. That's one of the great things about working on those records, particularly Billy Joel records, but a lot of records was I always felt like I was capturing a moment. And it will always be proven working with Jim and Phil where the artists will say, no, 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 let's do another one. And if, and they would let them, yeah, go ahead, go do another one. It's take four guys. And they'd go out and they'd beat it to death and they'd think they nailed it and they'd come back and go, no, that's sloppy tape four. That's the one. So I think capturing a moment, getting great sounds quickly is is what a, a 90% of the engineers never would have survived on those dates. I think that you establish relationships with producers and artists because you sort of blend in with their with their approach and their style. And I think that's why certain artists work with certain engineers consistently and certain producers work with certain engineers consistently. You know, one thing that Jim benefited from and I benefited from greatly, Phil Ramone is one of the very few people in the world at that time that was as comfortable working in film on Broadway, doing a record and doing a live recording. Everybody in those days had their niche. Like you could put a gun to my head and you could not get me to do a jingle date because those guys have to, I mean, they record basic tracks from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. They record strings from 11.15 to 12.30. They record vocals from 12.30 to 1. They do strings and then they mix a four track, a stereo and a mono. My head would explode. Like their (laughs) skill set is massive. But Phil had, because of his relationship with artists, uh, working with Streisand and working with Streisand live, and then working on films with Streisand, and and you know he knew all these disciplines. I mean, I don't want to bore you, but you know if you're in film, you've got to understand 24 frames per second, 60 cycle sync. If you're in video, you've got to understand 2997, 5994. You know these numbers will make your hit. So the thing was, Jim and I both benefited from the fact that this was one of the few producer engineers that was multidisciplinarian. Most people stuck to their niche. You know what I mean? If they knew how to do a Broadway show, they didn't understand film sync and editing. It gave us a lot of latitude, I think, to work with a lot of different artists. And also, I think something else that dribbled down 
from Phil to Jim and myself is just if you look at Phil's discography, you know, it's like Coltrane, Streisand, Afternoon Delight. (laughs) (laughs) You got a wide spectrum there. Jim stepped away from recording for quite a while and then got back into it uh, in the digital age. Jim jumped on compact discs. When compact discs were first released in the first few years, there wasn't much manufacturing worldwide, which was part of the reason that compact discs were so expensive. He teamed up with, I believe, an expert in plastics, optical plastics, and they formed a company and they opened a company called American Helix that was uh, an early independent compact disc manufacturing plant. And so he did that for a number of years. And I think they were bought out and bought out and bought out. And then he returned to music. It is somebody made a point of saying that he came back in and was, you know, working in Pro Tools, which obviously was was the norm by then. Do you recall anything about like, you know, getting back into into mixing and engineering and it, and it being different for him being 100% digital versus starting off analog and then being out of it for a little while? No, I don't think so. He also he also did a good amount of live sound. By okay. dealing with live sound, he was dealing with digital because the, the new boards these days are all digital. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, and also you are talking about the guy <laughs> that rec- that worked on uh, Songs in the Attic on one of the early Nightmare digital machines, a machine I will always despise, a, a 3M <laughs> 32-track digital machine, one of the first multi-track digital machines. Jim had a lot of experience with digital. You know, I, I did, and I think Jim did too, like like people look at me like, you know, you know, I'm a bit of an old timer. I do, obviously I mix constantly in Pro Tools, but like I worked on the first AMS audio file, which for $80,000 was an eight track digital machine. So Jim was involved, you know, Jim was on the forefront of all the digital and suffered all the pain. So you could go out and spend $99 and get Pro Tools. Do you know what inspired him to to get into this CD manufacturing? I'm going to guess that it had to do with the album market was softening at that point. And I think that it was an investment in his future. As far as many huge budget, you know, good solid budget. I mean, there was just so much work. Like I'm saying, there was so much, like that year that I assisted him on 12 albums, those 12 albums, none of those were Phil Ramone, Billy Joel albums. I had nothing to do with Phil and Billy and and when I did those 12 records. So he did 12 records aside from doing Streisand and Billy Joel and Chicago. The world was just so fertile and I think that um I'm not sure but I think it started to you know it started to be less consistent good solid projects of being Probably about. by the 90s when uh, when he was getting into CDs he was also doing live music is that correct? Live sound? I think the live music started when he left the compact disc manufacturing business. Oh, okay. I think he he left the business and he got into doing live sound. He worked at a number of outdoor venues in California, so I don't know exactly who booked them. You know, the fact that he came from that Phil Ramone school that you guys were all schooled in with, you know, capturing that moment, making everything so conducive, fixing things on the fly. Do you think that made him especially uh, suited to live to live sound? That maybe other people couldn't make that jump from the studio? Oh, absolutely. Live sound is a very different animal uh, than studio recording. I personally am terrified of doing live sound and you won't get me to do it. I've done it a couple times. <laughs> Tip my hat to Brian Ruggles. I've done it a couple times. I did not have pleasant experiences. <laughs> but that said, the approach that Jim had in the studio was treating the band like it was a live sound gig. It was 
This isn't a studio gig. This is a live gig. They're out there playing and we got to capture this shit. So mm-hmm. I think that Jim would have done brilliantly. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to do it, but he actually called me this year before he passed away and asked me to come out and do some live sound gigs with him. And I just didn't have the time in my schedule, so I wasn't able to do it. I don't think they came up yet. I think they, they had all been postponed because of the, the COVID schedule had really oh, messed sure. stuff up. Do you know what inspired him to get back into into studio mixing? Jim, Jim just always loved it. There's no way we didn't have so much fun if we didn't absolutely love what we were doing. You know, I never really discussed it with him, but it, it you know, it didn't, I don't think it ever left him. I think he may have stepped out of the business at a time that it was in transition and, you know, kept himself on his feet and provided him and his family with a good living in an associated field where you got to interact with a lot of the same people. But something tells me that that didn't scratch the itch. You know, running that company was not as satisfying. Look, it's just obvious it, was, it wasn't as satisfying as, mm-hmm. as doing audio work, you know, and mixing. Otherwise, you, who would go back to it? Like, <laughs> yeah, who would well, that, Especially right? at that time, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. if, you're over, if you're over 50 and you've already done Billy Joel records and recorded live concerts around the world, <laughs> who would go back to doing live sound, you know? Right. Aside from somebody that was passionate about it. When you're discussing a mixer like Jim, you can't verbalize what separates them, I think. It's very difficult to verbalize what separates them from other mixers. And an example would be, Elliot Shiner had just won the Grammy for Steely Dan. And I started working at AR. And he was in the studio tracking Steely Dan. And I walked in and I looked at the console and I didn't see anything. Like, I'm like, what does Elliot do to make this? It's just the decisions that that person makes responding to the music they hear. So I wish I could find a more articulate way of describing Jim's mixing style. But again, it's elusive because if I walk in and tell you where he turned, you know, I'm in the process of remixing Nylon Curtain for Atmos and I am trying to figure out what Jim did and it sounds phenomenal and I have a few notes and it's really difficult. Do you know what I mean? So the special touches that he put on that record are between his ears, his brain and his fingers. It's not like I can describe what he did you know, that was unique. It's, it's the choices he made. Brad, thanks so much for sitting down with us once again and opening up about Jim. I know you often joke about there's a lot you don't remember about those times. But for us who weren't there in the room, you come with a wealth of knowledge and insight and great stories that keep me on the edge of my seat every time. So thank you so much for sharing your memories of Jim and for just continuing to be a good friend of the podcast. Yeah, we hope to speak with you again soon. Uh, Same with Larry. Same with anyone from uh, the Billy Joel camp that would like to get in touch. And uh, apparently, uh, anyone from the Stevie Nicks camp that wants to talk to us because The big news going into 2023 is Billy Joel is doing a run of shows with Stevie Nicks. This isn't quite getting the amount of general press coverage as the Elton John Billy Joel face-to-face tours, at least when they first came out. Mm -hmm. But we are in a different era. Just things aren't as centralized. What's funny about it is I think a lot of us are like, that's a really weird mashup. And at least one person 
uh, I think in, in our Discord was like, oh man, I love them both. I can't wait. This is, you know, this is great. And, you know, I never really thought about it. But, you know, what's funny is that arguably Stevie Nicks wasn't as big as Billy at any given point, at least not on her own. But, you know, she really followed sort of the same trajectory. She was huge in the late 70s with Fleetwood Mac. Then she sort of reinvented herself in the 80s, capturing another generation of fans with her solo work. And like Billy, she stopped putting out records. I know she did Trouble in Shangri-La in like 2002, a solid decade after River of Dreams. But even after that, she put out a lot of albums in the 80s and then really cooled her heels. And I think that has likely helped her stay relevant, you know, in that way that there's some mystique about her you know she had she hadn't um put out a whole bunch of late career albums especially once uh, we weren't buying cds anymore that really would have gotten lost in the shuffle yeah she had one in 2011 and one in 2014 she didn't go springsteen or paul mccartney or elton john wherever like every couple of years yeah they were putting out another one yep. yeah um so let's see yeah 81 83 85 89 94 and then we stop until 01 and then 2011 and then 2014, but 2014... It's not quite a compilation. It's described as uh, new versions of demos that she had previously recorded between 1969 and 1987. So it was reworkings of old songs and old demos. Kind of interested now to listen to this album, see what, you know, see what they did with it. But yeah, you know, to that point, you know, 94, right around the time of River of Dreams, relatively speaking, uh, she's only put out two albums since then so we get to remember her for edge of 17 yep. stop dragging my heart around bigger fans will know more songs than me <laughs> but i mean you know edge of 17 is a yeah i mean that's a classic there's no two ways about that oh 100 what's the other one there's another big one talk to me it's a big one yeah i don't know if i know that one but uh i mean i mean i remember, I remember when trouble in shangri-la came out funny enough because i think i saw her on tour of fleetwood mac not long after that we've got a handful of dates and like jack you said it's interesting not like the Billy Elton tour where it was an entire tour announced together. This has kind of been announced a show at a time, couple of shows at a time. So there may still mm. be more to come, but we do have a handful on the calendar. Now, first one is March 10th at, at SoFi stadium in Los Angeles. We have April 8th in Arlington, Texas at AT&T stadium, May 19th in Nashville, Nissan stadium, August 5th, Ohio stadium in Columbus, August 19th, at GF Field at Arrowhead in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm going to be curious to see if how many more they announce because you know Billy doesn't tour that extensively anymore. I don't know what Stevie Nicks' tour. I saw her with Fleetwood Mac about four years ago. but And actually, they were pretty active last year because I'm friends with Liberty's ex-wife, Mary. There's the funny connection. Mary and Stevie are very close friends, and Mary has toured with Stevie and Fleetwood Mac for years. Um, I think she was in wardrobe early on and runs the teleprompter now. And I believe even their daughter uh, is in the touring camp as well, or has been. She told me that they, they spent about seven months on the road last year. So they had a pretty active 2021 in 2022. I'm looking at concertarchives.org and I guess take this with a grain of salt. For what we're doing, this is going to give us the idea. So 2023, she has five concerts scheduled. Those are all the Billy ones, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 2022 was 35 shows. 2021 says three. Mm. 2020, which doesn't count, was three. 2019 was four. 2017 was 49. 2016 was 32. Uh, and then going back to 2012 was 29. 2011 was 62. So she kind of goes on and off, but has been active every year. And like I said, yeah, Fleetwood 
Mac has been super busy the last five years or so. Oh, right. Yeah, because I was like totally listening to what you said <laughs> as I was looking this up. <laughs> we'll see if more shows get put on the docket. And uh, uh, this is a good time to hear from you all. Who's got thoughts on the Stevie Nicks-Billy Joel pairing? I think from a marketing standpoint, it's spot on. They're similar, but also different. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. I mean, you know, there's a lot of overlap, but then there are a lot of people on other, on either side of that yeah. camp that don't. And I like the idea of pairing with an artist that's not another piano player. I mean, I love Elton. I've seen Elton a number of times, have all his records, big fan. It's not that at all. Mm-hmm. But to see a different pairing is really exciting to me. So I'm I'm on board for this and I would love to see one of these shows. You know, I know it's not going to be like a face-to-face thing where they play a set together like Billy Dalton did, but are we going to, you know, see them sing a couple songs together? Are we going to get, you know, stop dragging my heart around leather and lace, right? You know, a couple duets and you know, what's, is there going to be any interplay between the two of them throughout the night? But uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a little excited. It's, uh, which is why I think these pairings are cool. Cause now I want to go listen to Belladonna. It's just occurred to me. I don't think I've listened to that album. I know a couple songs off it. Yeah. I wouldn't mind digging into a couple of these records and seeing and seeing what's what. So, you know, I'm sure other people are doing that too. Are you? Let's find out. Uh, send us an email. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and positive review. Every five-star rating and positive review tells Apple that we are a podcast of merit. People enjoy us and more people will enjoy us. So it'll promote us to uh, more potential listeners making it a free, easy, and fun way to help us grow the community. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on Jim Boyer. And, you know, if any of you ever had any interaction with him over the years or knew him, love to hear your thoughts. Anything stand out to you in our conversation with Larry and Brad? I'd love to know what you came away with. Both conversations were incredibly fascinating for both of us. And on the uh, touring front, you know, what shows are you guys going to this year? I know Jack and I are still trying to figure out a show for the two of us to go to together. Um, we've never seen Billy Joel together, so it's something with, that we uh, definitely want to make sure we do while he's still doing this. But on top of these Stevie Nicks shows, he's got a couple interesting ones. February at the Falls View Casino in Niagara Falls, in Melbourne, Australia coming up December 10th here, New Zealand December 3rd, so that's right around the corner here as of the recording date. And he's got a huge summer show. I don't know if we already touched on it in episode past, but uh, July 7th at London Hyde Park. BST Hyde Park. So it's already shaping up to be a nice active year in the Billy Joel camp. And I know there's going to be some fun releases coming down the pike. So it's good to be in the Billy Joel business, friends. I agree. Well, we'll see you on the edge of 17 days from now. (laughs) If you see our reflection in the snow covered hills, (laughs) we'll see you guys in two weeks. All right. We'll see you soon, everyone. Thanks again. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.